Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, happy July 4th goes out to Ryan M. and to our regular monthly donor, Samuel G., both of whom made donations directly to the salon to help with our monthly expenses here. Also, I'd like to welcome Daisy D., Zanzibar D., Riley S., Robin S., and James J., all of whom are my newest supporters on Patreon. And I look forward to meeting them and my other Patreon supporters this coming Monday night for our weekly Zoom conversations. So thank you one and all for your support of these podcasts. Now today we're going to pick up with the next-to-last Terrence McKenna talk from the March 1996 Esalen Workshop that we've been listening to for, well, for a few weeks now. And today I'm going to play what became a regular feature of these lectures where Terrence went into great detail about his time wave idea. And if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you know that I haven't been playing his time wave lectures lately for reasons that I really don't need to go into once again. But I'm including it today because, as far as I know, there aren't any other copies of this weekend workshop on the net, and I think it should be complete. Thanks to Ian Wynn, who was a participant in this workshop, I've been able to digitize a set of tapes the Esalen staff gave him as a remembrance of his time there that weekend. So uh, thank you once again, Ian. Now, I suspect that maybe a few of our fellow saloners will consider leaving us after I say my piece about the I Ching right now. But let me ask you, do you really believe that it's possible for a fortune-telling book that is thousands of years old to be able to provide personal advice about your life if you just toss a few coins so as to find the perfect paragraphs that fit your current situation? Think about that for a moment. Is tossing a few coins any better than shuffling a tarot deck? I simply don't understand intelligent people like Terence McKenna who put so much value into a fortune-telling book. The only reason I can figure that Terence was into it was that after rejecting his parents' religion, the I Ching appealed to his mystical sense simply because it's so old. In my opinion, you can get just as much good advice from the daily horoscope in your newspaper or from a Chinese fortune cookie as you can from tossing the I Ching coins. Yet, many people I know seem to revere it like a holy book of some kind. Sure, there's some good advice in it, but Tossing a few coins to find the part of the book that applies directly to your life at this exact moment in time, well, that seems kind of foolish to me. But Terrence took it seriously and uh, wound up with his time wave idea. Of course, we know how that turned out. One other critique I have comes from the part of the talk we are about to listen to, where Terrence explains how he initially fixed the endpoint and starting points of his wave. If I understood him correctly, he began by fitting deep plunges in his graft to calendar dates where there was an event of great historical importance. And I'm not questioning that way of fitting it on a timeline. The thing that disturbs me, however, is that history is written by the winners, and it isn't necessarily a true story of everything that has happened. In fact, it isn't out of the realm of possibility that there could have been even larger historical events that took place and, well, have essentially disappeared from written history. 
Also, there seems to be a lack of historical points on this graph from Chinese history. Uh, and that seems kind of strange to me since the time wave is built around an ancient Chinese book. And I probably don't need to add this observation, but just because Terence calls his time wave idea a theory, in fact, it isn't. As you already know, a theory is a coherent group of tested general propositions that are commonly regarded as correct. And by definition, the time wave idea is a hypothesis at best, but it's never been an actual theory. And one last comment before we listen to this uh, recording. As you will hear, Terence was describing his time wave software graphs on a projection to a screen that everybody could see. Unfortunately, I don't have the ability to add those images to this podcast, but what I have done is to add a screen capture of the graph from 1995 through 2012, and I included it in today's program notes, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com. If you take a look at it, you can easily see why Terence was so excited about its prediction for the period that they had just entered. In fact, it looks like an extremely deep plunge into novelty has just begun. However, uh, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, that entire year seems to be devoid of almost any world-shaking events that I can find. You may want to take a quick look at the history of 1996 yourself, however, uh, just to see what I may have missed. Well, that's enough of my critique of the time wave for now. So let's join Terence and learn what it is that made him believe in the power of that old book to tell the future of the entire human race via his interpretation of it into the time wave. And then I'll be back after that to add a few more of my own thoughts about this talk. We're going to take a sort of conceptual and subject uh, categorical leap here. I assume you all have some familiarity with the I Ching. Is that a reasonable assumption? The I Ching is a Chinese divinatory system of great antiquity. It involves 64 ideograms called hexagrams that are composed of broken and unbroken lines. Uh, they are arranged in a traditional sequence called the King Wen sequence. The divination is carried out through a coin toss operation or a uh, sortilege involving euro stocks. I assume I'm not making headlines with this news for anybody, okay? Good. So, uh, the I Ching, usually translated as the Book of Changes, is in fact uh, a scientific text, in my opinion, a study of great sophistication of the very subject we're talking about this evening, the nature of time, the nature of change. And in the same way that Western science, by fixating through certain Greek predilections on matter, was able to unravel a a nuclear chemistry and and molecular biology and so forth, these ancient people in China, pre-Han, early Zhou, uh, which we're talking 1500 BC, uh, they weren't interested in matter. They were interested in time. And they brought to this interest in time at least as much energy and sophistication as the research teams at CERN in Switzerland bring to probing the heart of the nucleus of the atom. 
and they learned things. You know, you spend a millennium or two on a given problem, uh, posing that problem under all circumstances and from many philosophical points of view and pharmacological platforms, eventually you begin to get answers. And I believe that the I Ching is a kind of smashed up piece of machinery that in its present form uh, is, is uh, uh, but a shadow of what it represented in the past in terms of sophistication and understanding. For several thousand years, it has been commented on and passed down and preserved by people who were not fully in touch with precisely what it was. Uh, you know, under the, uh, under the guidance of the Logos with the help of uh, psilocybin and so forth and so on, I think I've made some progress with reconstructing what this ancient piece of machinery might have looked like and what kind of information they might have been getting out of it. So now bear with me for a minute, if you haven't been already. Uh, as I said, the I Ching is 64 hexagrams, numbered 1 through 64, and usually presented in a traditional sequence called the King Wen sequence, which is old. Nobody knows where it came from. King Wen is a legendary figure. He supposedly got into some political trouble uh, around 1350 BC and they put him in the can for a while. And while he was there, he figured this out. He thought it up. He built this operating system. Uh, and the interesting thing about the King Wen sequence is that it is not in a logical sequence uh, on the face of it. Uh, when Leibniz, the European philosopher, got his hands on the I Ching, his Jesuit friends shipped him a copy in the, in the 17th century, he immediately organized it as a binary number system. Uh, and rearranged the hexagram and showed that it was a binary number system and, and Leibniz's sequence. Any hacker knows instantly how to do it from the first hexagram on. King Wen's sequence is uh, not at all obviously under any set of rules. And the logos in its promptings to me, it was interesting, it was like a koan you know, uh, a, a problem which a master sets a student which must be solved before we can move on to deeper water. And the koan was, you know, what are the ordering principles of the King Wen sequence? Can you prove, in fact, that it is the product of uh, intent? Or is it, in fact, simply a jumble that has become traditional over thousands of years and there is no set of rules for generating the King Wen sequence. Pretty close focus stuff, you notice. We're not talking here about planetary transformation or uh, uh, human fusion with the biosphere. It's very academic, close focus, analytical stuff. So I looked at the King Wen sequence and I was intuitively led, is probably the way to put it, to look at what's called the first order of difference. The first order of difference 
is a very simple concept. It simply means how many lines change as you go from one hexagram to the next. Simple, right? Okay, so as you go from hexagram one to two, there's a certain change value, six or whatever it is, and then three to four, four to five, so forth and so on. And so I, I found out what these data points were, and then I drew a graph of these values down to 64. And uh, I'm just, it's just a symbol of it, obviously. And so I looked at this thing for a long time, and it didn't seem to have any, it looked stochastic, random. It didn't seem to have any particular order to it. But then I noticed a, a very interesting thing which is that this section is a mirror image of this section, such that, imagine making a copy of this and putting it right here and then rotating it 180 degrees in the plane, meaning turn it upside down to the non-technical folks. Uh, turn it upside down, well, then you can, it will slide into itself a perfect fit here and here. So then you get something which looks like this. In other words, it has closure at the beginning and closure at the end, but no closure in between. Interesting thing about these data points is that if you think about the possible data points, they are obviously one, two, three, four, five, or six, the number of lines that can change as you go from one hexagram to another. In fact, there are no fives. Uh, if you look at the King Wen sequence, the, one of the first things you notice is that it is not simply 64 hexagrams. It is really 32 pairs of hexagrams because each... Pair, the, the, first, the pairs are formed by turning the first term upside down. Now, there are eight cases where turning a hexagram upside down has no effect on it. And in all eight cases, it is followed by a hexagram uh, which is exactly its opposite. And so the rule obviously is, if turning a hexagram upside down causes no change, all lines change then you can analyze these data points and you discover that there are 75% odd, va odd values, 25% even values. Exactly. So no fives. This three-to-one ratio of odd to even and this peculiar closure seem to me a sufficient argument that this is the product of human intent. This was supposed to be done this way. And in fact, in some of the older commentary on the I Ching, there's a passage in which it says the forward-running numbers refer to the past. The backward-running numbers refer to the future. Well, now in the I Ching, there are no backward-running numbers. But in this thing, there are. Because when you make this, you have 1, 2, 3 to 64. But what you've got over here is 63... 62, 61, down to 1. And what you've got over here is equals 64, 64, 64. It always sums to 64. So what this is is some kind of magical, occult, multi-leveled, 
uh, mana-laden thing that these pre-Joe diviners dreamed up. Essentially, the entire I Ching has been turned into this monoglyph of itself. Well, so now, let's symbolize this thing by the letter S. A hexagram, as you know, is uh, made of six lines. It's also, if you know a little more about it, in the commentaries, it's always thought of as being formed of two trigrams, two three-lined structures. And then it has uh, an essential and very powerful cohesive unity as a hexagram, as a unity, as a one. So every hexagram has six lines, two trigrams, and one wholeness to it. So the thought which occurred to me under the strong prompting of the Logos was to take this thing which I just showed you, which is at the top of a kind of hierarchy, and move it to the bottom of the hierarchy. And I did it and build a hexagram. So remember how I said we'll symbolize that thing by the letter S? So I, made, I took six of those, and I did this. Yeah, six. I laid six in a row. And that stood in my mind for the six lines of a hexagram. But over this, I lay then two. Like that. Those are the trigrams. And then I'm sure you anticipate my thought. Over that, I lay one. That stands for the unity of the, of the hexagram. Okay, so now what I had was a lot of lines a lot of lines running everywhere, and the absolute conviction that I now possessed uh, an enormous secret of some sort, the map of time, the picture of history, the snapshot of the zeitgeist moving through a higher dimension, something like that. And I was a burden to my friends and a joy to my enemies, uh, uh, for many, many months as I attempted to corner people in all-night conversations uh, of great energy and perplexity that had my friends meeting to plan what is to be done. Hope this never happens to you. And finally, Ralph Abraham, God love him, said, uh, it's an occult thing. I mean, it's just this occult thing. Only you understand it. And it's not even clear that your interpretation is always the same. He said, what you have to do is you have to, com you have to turn it into an ordinary mathematical object that, that, some, that is, you know, a known quantity. Well, essentially, this was like telling your dog to split the atom. It was like, great, Ralph, Thanks. Do you think you'll have any time in the next few months to put in on this? Uh, 
And so I sat with it for a couple of years. And then one afternoon, I was getting loaded and watching dust motes in a sunbeam and not thinking about anything much at all. And uh, I had it. I had it whole and entire. I saw how to take this occult thing, how to take its multiple properties, such as degree of parallelism, skew, overlap, the three, the, the scales of the three levels and all of these variables, and I saw how to collapse it into an ordinary mathematical object. And it's quite trivial. I, I won't bore you with it. It's so trivial. It basically has to do with uh, deconstructing the, the, the wave, assigning numerical values to all of its parts, rebuilding it, and then adding them up. And then, lo and behold, all these intuitions you had about how when it is parallel and close together, values should drop and all that, are conserved, and we get the time wave. And the time wave, and and the computer is simply doing a whole lot of housekeeping work with it, and not making any arithmetical errors, and scaling it to time. Now, uh, the the objection that could be made to this, or easily could be made to it, and that I, ca- I f- at one time felt the force of this objection. Uh, I've talked myself out of it now, but it's how I would have attacked it myself at a certain point. And it, was, it went something like this. Uh, now, let's see. You are um, advocating a revision in physics based on a Chinese oracle uh, that you have uh, deciphered a secret message from? Is, is that it? And, and how long have you had this <laughs> a particular delusion? <laughs> so I've built a metaphor, which I hope makes it a little clear, clearer why I believe... Uh, it is reasonable to use a Chinese oracle as a stepping stone to a revision of, uh, of physics. Um, and in order to explain this, I have to have resort to a fairly elaborate metaphor. So here it is. Think of uh, sand dunes. Just picture them in your mind for a moment. Now, uh, Notice that this picture in your mind of these dunes, that the dunes look like wind. They look like wind. Now, sand dunes are made by wind. What's going on here? The wind is a a pressure, a, a variation in pressure gradients over time, which moves the sand around. And when the wind stops blowing, what is left is essentially a lower dimensional signature of this higher dimensional phenomenon. Come see, come saw? Now, for grains of sand, substitute genes. For wind, substitute millions of years of evolutionary time. Time flows, and the genes move around, and they assume certain configurations. 
I maintain that those configurations are lower dimensional slices of the higher dimensional architecture of time itself. In other words, we bear the thumbprint of the medium in which we arose. We bear it in every cell of our bodies. Every atom bears it. Every molecule bears it. Uh, the, and and this, if this can be known, this pattern of time that is impressed in all organism and perhaps all matter, uh, then time, an understanding of time unfolds as a fractal, an infinitely self-similar uh, structure that is repeating different patterns on many, many scales in order to create the phenomenology of the universe as we experience it. So, uh, that's basically the theory. And then uh, the theory, I don't think, would amount to much if it weren't for the fact that with the computer, we can now take the theory and ask the question, okay, given all this arm-waving and theorizing, does the unfolding wave actually mirror and hence predict the unfolding of the historical continuum. I maintain that at this stage, it's arguable that it does. Uh, now, there's a, there's a, a, but there's a curious and unsettling aspect to all of this. If you have a theory of wave mechanics of any system, uh, waves have wavelength. Therefore, the wave must be generated from some point. And uh, if what we're talking about is a, a, a graphic congruence between theory and nature, then theory must be fitted to nature in the search for a best fit between the curve the describing curve and the phenomena it seeks to describe. You understand what I mean? Now, the problem is, with this theory, if it is a problem, is that when we compute our best fit of the curve to the data, we reach a fairly unexpected conclusion, which is that novelty is going to reach infinity within our own lifetimes. That the universal process that has been going on for billions of years across this epigenetic landscape, wandering deeper and deeper into realms of novelty, faster and faster and deeper and deeper, is actually going to uh, reach, uh, become mathematically outside of our description within our own lifetime, specifically... Uh, uh, in 2012 A.D. It's, it's not pleasing, this, this prophecy of the end of the world within one's own lifetime. This is the typical pattern of delusional messianism that is so drearily familiar. Uh, nevertheless, we have more than uh, a, l a Lullian decoding of scripture here. We have a formal and completely unambiguous algorithm, and we have a body of data. So I just will now demonstrate it to you, 
and uh, you can reach your own conclusions. There are people who have who may not even be aware of this theory who have reached the same conclusion. Some by me by avenues I respect, and some by avenues I don't respect. And without saying who's who, I'll list some of these uh, uh, approaches. Uh, there's a group of people, I believe they're called extopians or singularists. They're engineers. They're total rationalists. They're tech heads. And they say that the rate of energy release, information storage, and technological advance is proceeding so rapidly that sometime between 2010 and 2025, the whole system becomes unrecognizable to itself. Congruence with this prediction. Uh, the Maya civilization, which perished a millennia ago, had a 5,600-plus-year calendar uh, that culminates on the exact same day that this theory computes to, a fact which I didn't know when I made my choice for the end date. Uh, there are Hasidic Jews in Israel who believe that they have reason, Kabbalistic logic to support the conclusion that the Messiah will appear in late July of 2012. Uh, and then someone mentioned last night this Vedic... It's called Jyotish. It's spelled J-O-Y. A form of astrology, right? It's, it's Vedic astrology, 3,000 or 4,000 years old. So, uh, you know, whether you do it by, if whether you calculate toward it mathematically or intuitionally or whatever, and whether you exist now or in the case of the Maya a millennia ago, certain people by certain techniques seem to have located a peculiar moment in time. And what exactly this means, uh, we don't know, but this wave scales to it as well. Now, what I want to do here... Uh, I, th this is this year, and pointing at today, and as you see, it will culminate here. But what I want to do now is put a lot of time on the screen mm -hmm. and show you uh, how this thing works. So let me uh, specify time span E. Okay, well, now, here, what we're looking at here is uh, a very large span of time, s six billion years and uh, the, the uh, entire career of life on Earth is 600 million years, which is this downsweep. So you see, at that scale, it, it's like a done deal. It's almost a smooth curve. On a scale of 600 million years, it's just been an uninterrupted rush toward the omega point ever since we dropped gills and crawled out onto the land. As we magnify and zoom into this, it turns out there was a lot of drama uh, uh, along the way. Let me see if I can get my zoom going here. Now, each time, we'll, each time it makes a new graph, we'll see twice as much detail and half as much time. There's 1.5 billion years. There's the last 750 million years. 375 million years, that's all life, uh, you know, getting hold of the planet. There's the last 100 million years. Here, let me stop that one. Okay, 
that's the last 93 million years. And uh, there, there is an uh, a, um, event that has to be predicted correctly uh, for the theory to work. At 65 million years, there was an asteroid impact that it caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. And uh, uh, there it is. It's an, it's, a, it's an exact science, folks, but I'm not. Uh, okay, here is this extinction event. We're, this is, uh, you've got 113 million years on the screen, ending at the zero point in 2012, and this massive extinction event, 65 million years, clearly shows as the most dramatic event on the screen. Yeah. Um, so what is the opposite of the descent into novelty, as you see the increasing point of scale reaching maximum at a slightly earlier time period? What's the it, converse? Equilibrium. Uh, yes, and then homeostasis. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, homeostasis is the perfect example because homeostasis is repetition, closed energy cycle. Absence of chaos. Absence of chaos. Predictability, yeah. in other words. And then it inevitably reaches a, a place where there's a symmetry break and then a cascade. And then disintegration. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so now let's start our zoom forward again. Um, well, what you do is, um, there's 46 million years. Let's get down here to something palpable. 11 million years. This is primate territory. Where did you use to hit the asteroid date? Uh, just published material in Nature. There's the last 2 million years, like that. Uh, the question was... How do you know when to start? You mean, where is, how, did, how did I choose the end date? Or the beginning date of the whole... Well, the beginning date, I'm a little fuzzy on. I simply propagated it back until I had more time than astrophysics requires for the life of the universe, and that was all I needed. I'm not, I'm not entirely committed to the Big Bang. There's plenty of odd assumptions in all of that stuff. Uh, what I did was I, <coughs> I thought about, I, I tr at first I tried to scale it to the stuff I knew. So I've been sort of interested in history. So I said, okay, if, if, if you have a theory of novelty of history, where are the novel points in history without getting too technical? Well, I think anybody who's studied history 25 minutes would nominate uh, the Greek Golden Age the Italian Renaissance, and the 20th century. Or at least they would tolerate those candidates. Uh, so I said, well, I then, let's see if we can find a place where three big troughs do that, and then let's look at the crucifixion, or something else, in other words, to see if it also appears to be correctly described. Well, eventually you get a fit where you can go from the Big Bang down to Nixon's resignation and always have this very satisfying feeling that it's giving it the correct scoring at the correct level of novelty and the correct ratio and proportion to the events in which it is embedded. And uh, when I got it right, the 
a, the last 67-year cycle begins the day the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And uh, it's a resonance, you see, with the Big Bang. And then um, everything else seemed to fall into place at that point. Now, it's tricky. It it's, it's, is tricky because it's a fractal. And so there are possibilities of, of error, but, um, and that's why periods of time like what we're living through are so interesting. Because, you see, I've made the small-scale prediction that this period we're living in will be novel based on large-scale correlations. Now, if the prediction comes true, that, like, clinches it. It shows then that the choice was correct and we gain confidence. And I maintain there's in principle no reason why this much information shouldn't be known about the future. The future is not magically guarded from understanding any more than any other part of nature is. And in fact, statistics, probability theory, is a valiant effort Uh, to come to terms with the future. I maintain horribly and inevitably flawed by the assumption of linear time. What do I mean by that? Well, here's how probability theory works. Say you want to know... Well, let me think of something. Uh, The charge on a certain... uh, uh, Well, no. How much electricity is running through a wire? You want to know this. Well, here's how you do it in ordinary science these days. Uh, You measure uh, the electricity 10,000 times, you add it together, and you divide by 10,000. Now, it's conceivable that the value you come up with will not match a single one of your measurements. Your measurements never agreed with this value. Uh, so what, do, what we're doing, you see, is because we assume time is uniform, we don't feel any intellectual sin in smearing those values that way. The law of averages damps the, the novelty in the system and you get a kind of averaging. Probability theory cannot be done anymore with impunity if this is true. Chucking the whole sort of plug of physics for the last 50 years and I, I think you're, you're making a you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You mean to attack probability theory? No, to, to ignore the excitement and the thrill of totally insanity that comes from quantum mechanics and relativity. Well no, I'm not rejecting that I, I, the, the quanta is far larger than probability theory uh, I think, you know, there's an interesting revolution going on in quantum physics right now. It's, it amuses me. Arguably, I mean, the one concept that seems secure in 20th century physics and about which there has been more ballyhoo and self-congratulations than about any other single concept is uh, the much-vaunted uncertainty principle of Heisenberg, which is supposed to be a bridge to understanding consciousness, uniting science and art, letting us see the scintillating, elusive, mercurial beauty of the... It turns out it's BS 
to put it as kindly as possible, when the Bohr-Heisenberg theory was formulated, uh, there was another theory of the quanta on the table. But uh, this theory uh, had an assumption built into it which was thought to be so fantastic that... uh, it was never seriously considered, and instead this uncertainty principle was taken on board. Uh, the the uh, notion which was built into the rejected version of the quanta was called non-locality. And it held that somehow all particles that had ever been in interaction with each other in the past were somehow mysteriously and instantaneously linked to each other throughout all space and time instantaneously. And since all particles were once confined in a space less than the diameter of the nucleus of a Joe atom, then presumably all particles in the universe were connected together through this non-locality, if you accepted this B theory of the quanta. So it was rejected out of hand. Uh, This was a theory formulated by David Bohm. Well, now it comes back to haunt them because uh, there is non-locality. It's been confirmed. At first, it was only there were thought experiments with it. Yes, and the so so here, but now experiments are being done where you actually bring two electrons together, separate them in space, flip the spin of one, and see the other one flip its spin, even though they're now separated in time and space. So, uh, I it. The physics community, and let me say about the Bohm theory and the Bohr-Heisenberg formulation, the mathematics is identical. The mathematics is identical. One does not give better results than the other, but they have these completely antithetical concepts built into them, and I doubt that the Heisenberg thing will survive. It was actually... Uh, a mistake. Oh, and, and that what I want to say then about the Bohm formulation is with Bohm's mathematics, velocity and location can be known simultaneously to any limit of exactitude. There is no uncertainty in the Bohr, I mean in the, in the Bohm formulation. Um, I don't know how I got off on this. Uh, yeah. My proposal to you is that those guys are having the same kind of and, and are not in events that you, I think you would be, you feel very warm and close to them because oh, I, I, that, that is analogous to the one you're looking at. Yeah, I, I would assume that if I'm right and if they're right, we'll have to meet somewhere out there. Uh, there's this guy Lentz at Stanford who has a very interesting cosmology, which he calls a fractal foam cosmology. And I don't understand his mathematics, but he talks about how in his cosmology, in the first few moments of the universe, these things were generated, called what, which he calls scalar waves. And they're waves 
but they're, they don't move. They're, as he puts it, frozen in space-time. But the reason you know they're there is because they affect the clustering and the ebb and flow of probability. That's it. That's it. I mean, it's absolutely it. So what Lenz's scalar waves have to do with the time wave, uh, I don't know, but it's very, very interesting that these kinds of theories uh, now are coming forward. Uh, I think it's because we are feeling an inadequacy in our science because the fine structure of complex systems won't come into focus using statistical analysis. You get a blurred picture of what's going on, and no matter how you deal with the data, it remains blurred because you're, this temporal variable is in there that you're not aware of, and, and it's creating this inadequacy in your model. Um, you wanted to say something? And well, two questions. First, how do you introduce data into the system? In other words, given the I Ching as the construct, Right, and and a formula derived from that, which is the assumption I'm making here. What do you enter to create the graph? Ah, you enter the valuations of the. There are 384 points in this thing because it's six times 64. So, uh, and at each one of these positions, you generate. A, a data, a, a, a number, and then that is fractalized and and put through this. And this is all explained exhaustively in the Invisible Landscape and in the, the manual for this thing is now 75 pages long. And, there and the second question is taking a 500-year model or a 250-year model or whatever we would choose in, in current time, is there a replication of the pattern currently shown with a decline of that order being demonstrated at any other point in history? Yes, the question you're asking is, are there resonances inside the system? And of course there are, because it's fractal. So self-similarity occurs at many scales. As you see with a normal fractal, self-similarity is hierarchical, this has hierarchical self-similarity, but it also has a degree of internal self-similarity on every, on every, uh, on every level. So uh, this plunge that we're going through right now, its resonance, its direct historical resonance on the preceding larger scale is the period uh, around the 10th century, 948 A.D., now, what happened in that period is uh, there was an enormous cultural efflorescence in Islam. The Umayyad Caliphate at Cordoba and the other Umayyad Caliphate at Baghdad uh, were producing, you know, an, and a lot of it was mathematical and technical. It's arguable that that was the birth of modern science.
Both kinds of resonances can be used as a basis for prediction is something I haven't had time to look at. There are many resonances to each point. It's not a simple system. We can Here we can only discuss it in simple terms, but in the MS-DOS version, it will print a page full of, reference, uh, of resonances. And let me explain how I imagine time in this thing. Here's, first of all, how the Newtonians imagine time. If you ask a Newtonian, what is the most important moment uh, impinging on this one? In other words, what moment is most important in shaping this moment? He will tell you, or she will tell you, it's the moment immediately before. This is this amazing faith in in the momentum of cause and effect. Uh, this takes a completely different view and says any given moment in time is a kind of interference pattern caused by the existence of other moments in time. And that time is, in fact, an extremely complex, data-heavy kind of holographic matrix. And if you, if you can decondition yourself from your large-scale position in things, you can actually feel or sense the, the continuum. I mean, I got it down to an aphorism. Rome falls nine times an hour. And if you're paying attention, you'll feel it go by every time. And if you are cleaning your apartment or walking in the woods, if you notice, you think things that there is no rationale for. And and as hemlines rise and fall on a slightly different scale, and as art movements come and go on a slightly different scale, what is all this? Well, it's other times, other resonances. Uh, It was very interesting. I... uh, at the website a couple of months ago, I said that I looked at the wave and I said the end of the year would have a medieval flavor because we were crossing through the late early eighth late eighth century or something. And then I noticed, you know, the the liberals have this thing every Christmas time this in Hilton Head, North Carolina, called the Renaissance Gathering, and Clinton always goes. So all the right-wingers got together at this thing called the Dark Ages <laughs> as a satire on the Renaissance. And, I'm, and their Dark Age gathering occurred right in the darkest of the Dark Ages in the Resonance. A lot of this is for the production of humor, I hope you realize. Uh, uh, If you're fans of James Joyce and understand how Ulysses is constructed, you know, what's going on in Ulysses is a man is trying to buy some kidneys to take back to his apartment to fry for breakfast. But somehow, in visiting the butcher and the local bar and running into an old friend... Uh, the entire Homeric War is fought out in these few blocks of Dublin, and also the entire fall and redemption of mankind. And this is called allegory, and it's nested reference uh, and fractal association, and it's a very powerful way to make art, and I think it's a very powerful way to make art because it's how nature made the world. The world... Is an, uh, is an allegory, and it's based on uh, 
analogies. I mean, I, I look sometimes at people and I see other people, you know. I see faces from the past, sometimes my past, sometimes uh, uh, a further back. Time is an interference pattern. Yeah. The one thing I'm a little confused about is is how you draw the pattern to a given scale. Like, does it make sense to say you could put in Terrence McKenna's birthday and see his timeline? People always ask this question. Uh, Yeah, although I'm not entirely comfortable with it. Let me trace the history of this kind of thinking for you. Uh, astrology has certain, obviously has certain analogs to this because it's about uh, predicting the fates of dynasties and so forth from the movement of the stars and it's, mathma- it's, a, it's a peculiar combination of mathematical exactitude and occult fancy um, um, oh god I've lost the thread ask again Ah, uh, the birthday thing, yes. So originally, astrology was a tool for statecraft. Uh, royal houses and wars and stuff were fought and that kind of thing. Well, the first, I don't know if they were the first, but the first large crop of yuppies uh, was late Roman. And uh, these people had vast wealth and they dabbled in the occult and they were interested in these mystery religions and they were aware of astrology as a tool of statecraft. And people asked the very same question. Said, you know, I'm an important person. Can you do a horoscope for me? And so then the natal horoscope was invented around that time, first century AD, the natal horoscope. Uh, I can imagine that we each have our own time wave in a sense and that it begins at your birth and it ends at your death or your death is a very novel point in the wave. Uh, The wave has different cycles in it. Uh, This has 384 data points. I mentioned that. Notice that 384 is exactly 13 lunations. At first, I thought I was discovering a Neolithic Chinese calendar, that it was just, it's an extraordinarily accurate lunar count. It precesses 19 days per year against the sun, but that might be a price people would be willing to pay, especially if it had been developed in a tropical climate. But uh, each larger cycle is made by multiplying that number, 384, by 64. And each smaller cycle is made by taking that number and dividing it by 64. And what you get then over about 20 levels, stretching from 72 billion years at the top, down to 6.55 times 10 to the minus 23rd at the bottom, in other words, the domain of Planck's constant, the realm of the jiffy, Uh, uh, you get uh, this set of nested cycles. Well, the next cycle up from this, from the 384-day cycle, is 67 years, 104.25 days. It's six sunspot cycles of the minor type, two of the major type, but interestingly close to the average human lifespan, 67 years, almost as though it's a kind of a, a t- 
tone, an octave of existence. Uh, I'm very interested in people's 68th year of life, uh, what that feels like. Because in a sense, if you live to be 68 in this theory, you get to start over. You know, you 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 were sort of your slate is cleaned, and uh, you get to go forward. But this kind of thing, I find, you know, I'm not that attracted to it. Uh, I'm more interested in the idea that this is some kind of a message from somewhere, and that the message is in two parts. The first part is something extraordinary is going to happen to you and your world in 2012. And the second part is, and the reason you should believe the first part is because this wave which predicts that predicts all things which preceded it, predicted the Italian Renaissance, so forth and so on. Let me start this puppy going again, and I'll show you what I mean. What have we got uh, a million point four on the screen? What's the uh, locality of it? Does this apply to our galaxy, the whole universe, or this planet? Well, that's another good question. I've, I've thought about it in all different ways, and I think, I think it's, it, it, it's local. I'm not sure how local. So it has to be a kin, uh, king wind and another planet to come up with the pattern you used well, if it's a if the un, if it's a universal fractal pattern, then it must be available in many places. A thing that would be very satisfying to me would be if somebody could find this same set of numbers somewhere else in nature. Like Bernoulli. Bernoulli, anywhere. Uh, yeah, I can't. The Fibonacci series. Yeah, the Fibonacci brought out a complex set of data. It sounds like that any moment in time can be decomposed into a number of hexagrams, and that the hexagrams have divinatory components to them, and that a hexagram has a meaning that you can draw from it. Uh, is there a sense in which you can figure out what hexagrams correspond with what moment and figure out the characteristics of that moment? Yes, you can, and you could build an, a vast interpretive industry on that. In other words, there would be a way to extract meaning rather than mathematics from this. What you would do is you would look at a given point in the wave and not only look at its wave structure, but say what hexagrams are building this and what are the ratios of the influences that they're contributing. And that is basically, that's another lifetime of work for me, but that would be very, very rich stuff. Okay, let's go, let it run for a minute. That's 1.4 billion years, 730,000 years, 366,000 years, 183,000 years. Now, those are glaciations in there. Nine, that's the last 100,000, 45,000. Now, let's look at this. This is the last, this is basically 5,000 B.C. Now the game, the stakes rise because 
uh, we know with fairly high detail what has gone on in the last 5,000 years in terms of inventions, cultural migrations, dynasties, so forth and so on. So uh, this is uh, from 5,000 BC to the present. Well, along this descent into novelty here are the, the great ancient civilizations, uh, Ur, Chaldea, Babylon, and down here in the bottom of the novelty trough, uh, pre-dynastic Egypt, Old Kingdom Egypt. In other words, the great pyramids are built precisely at the most novel point of that trough, which sort of supports the theosophical faith that Egypt did know, did learn something that it took a long time to go past them, not necessarily 1950. Uh, according to the time wave, they were, uh, they were the most novel thing that had ever come down the pike until roughly the foundation of, uh, of the Roman Republic. And that's about right. That feels about right. Uh, on this upslope, this is all pretty ugly stuff here. The Hittites, the Mitanni, uh, Assyria. We're really getting into male dominance, warfare as a way of life, empire building, slavery, uh, huge building projects based on human agony. Uh, ugly business, but it's punctuated by some real moments of progress like, uh, oh, the Phoenician alphabet and so forth and so on. And up here at the top of this thing, Homer sings his song. The, the Trojan Wars occur actually just slightly before that. What's happening there is that Mycenaean piracy is overwhelming the old Minoan Empire. This is just in a small part of the world, but it happens to have a lot of consequences. Let me say about that, some people say, your theory is so Eurocentric. Have you noticed what kind of world you're living in? That's right. That's why the theory is Eurocentric. Uh, in other words, the Maya may have been wonderful, but what counts in the historical game is how much influence you have on the present. And the Maya have no influence on the present. I mean, other than some interesting shards in the museums and the respect for their architecture, they didn't pass it on. So, you know, uh, there isn't a man, woman, and child on this earth who wasn't deeply affected by what went on in Greece in the 5th century BC. Not a man, woman, or child on this planet. Now, what was going on in 5th century BC uh, somewhere else, that, that river of influence may not have reached the present. Some did, some didn't. But... Uh, some, something got loose in, in, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean right up in this time span. I think it's the phonetic alphabet. I think the phonetic alphabet empowers a distancing from the object of your concern that allows this eerie Faustian thing that is so typical of, uh, of the Western mind. And I'm not, I didn't originate that idea. Many people have commented that the Greek alphabet, it, it just carries you so far into abstraction that uh, then 
that light, that thought style becomes inevitable. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've been describing uh, events in Western culture. What are what are the correlatives to Indo-Asian? Yes, good question. Um, in spite of the objection that the thing is culturally skewed toward European history, if you actually study world history, it's interesting. Uh, great advances seem to occur simultaneously in different places, in and of itself an argument for something like the time wave. Uh, so, you know, while the Roman Empire is rising and establishing law and order and so forth and so on, the Han Dynasty is doing the same thing in China. Uh, as the Maya are reaching their cultural apex with their astronomy and their mathematics and so city building and so forth and so on, the Cordovan Caliphates are doing the same thing. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of that sort of is thing. Is there any antithesis here at all measurable? I mean, a contradiction? I don't understand. Well, in other words, where one series of events would describe homostasis, another series of events would, would describe a descent into novelty. In other words, have you located any contradiction within the prescribed system? No, because a descent into novelty, as it were, takes precedence. Equilibrium only, in, only counts if it completely pervades the system. You see what I mean? Uh, all right, let's go forward into this because I want you to see these later epochs. Oh, I guess I didn't uh, enter the thing. Uh, I want you to see these later epochs because this is where we can really judge it more accurately. Uh, this is basically from 300 AD. Uh, I'm sorry, AD, yes. Uh, from This is from the fall of Rome to the present, not precisely. The fall of Rome, is, it, was, it took a long time and there were humiliation after humiliation, but generally the kidnapping of Augustus, Augustus Romulus in 375 is considered to be the final straw. So uh, notice that what this says is that after the fall of Rome here, history had a different character. It was not a steep and fairly uninterrupted descent into novelty, but it began to oscillate between periods of novelty and periods of intense recidivism. And notice also that this theory is not shy about making predictions. Now we're down on it. And um, this extraordinarily steep descent into novelty right here that's the resonance to what's happening right now. That's 10th century Islam. Uh, this one which precedes it over here is the, uh, the foundation moment of Islam. Muhammad is born in 570 and died in 630. That, that whole thing occurs along this descent. Islam is very important. I have to stress this because we all live in a culture that is totally anti-Islamic. And, you know, it's perfectly legitimate to talk about ragheads and this and that. But I've got news for you. Uh, you know, the science, the mathematics, the architecture, the poetry, the administrative skills, the knowledge of hydrology, so forth and so on. And for any 
people or person who is truly alarmed by modernity, we were talking about this this evening, uh, Islam is an answer. And I imagine it's going to experience great growth over the next few years. Uh, These portions of Central Asia that were held by the old Soviet Union, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Nagorno, uh, Badskaya, and all of these places, uh, if they were ruled by the people who live there, they would be radical Islamic republics. It's conceivable that in this period over the next few months, there could be a worldwide uprising of Islam that would end with it making the greatest territorial gains since it's made in the 10th century. Uh, if, if all Muslims were ruled by Muslim governments, an enormous reconstruction of the boundaries of the world would take place. So these two dissents both seem related to Islam. I mean, Europe is just a mess at this time. I mean, Macrobius, writing in the 5th century, thought that uh, uh, the circumference of a circle was twice its diameter. You know, what? They didn't have string? I don't know. (coughs) Imagine that. That's how low things sunk in Europe while these people were gazing at the stars and inventing the quadratic equation and so forth and so on. Okay, uh, this one, hard for you to see, uh, occurs in 1122. That's the the crusade which breaks apart the stasis of medieval Europe and lets in all kinds of novelty, right? Uh, Now, the next one is this one, and this is an interesting one and and illustrates how the character of dissents, uh, well, the different characters of kinds of dissent into novelty. Let me get it on the screen a little bigger here. Uh, here it is, this one. Now, it reach, it's a dramatic descent into novelty, but unlike most descents into novelty, it's also a dramatic return to normalcy. Now, what kind of event would give a signature like that? A dramatic descent into novelty, a dramatic ascent back to the previous the certain... Of empire and the growth of another empire equals power. Well, how about this? an epidemic disease. Yes, 1356. One third of the population of Europe dies in 18 months. But now think about that. It's catastrophic. It's traumatic. But no new technology is introduced. No boundaries are shifted. No new religion enters the area. And no genes cross frontiers. There is simply a demographic collapse Everything comes to a halt, and then everybody who was in number two, three, and four position moves up, the wheels start turning again, and there's no thirst for innovation. The entire effort is just to get back where you were before the bad news hit, and so within a generation or two, you're back where you were. Uh, Very interesting that the correlation between what actually happened and the shape of the graph seems to support Uh, that conclusion. In contrast to that signature, notice what came next. 
an entirely different kind of descent into novelty. First of all, starting from greater recidivism and ending in greater novelty, such novelty that there is no recovery. There's a slight recovery, but this entire trough represents a lower level of novelty than had really ever been probed before. So what is this? Well, right up here at the top, it's 1440. No, that's in 1455, 15 years later, but that plays a role in it. No, 1440 in Mainz near Frankfurt, Johannes Gutenberg prints the first book. And if you think the internet was something, this was a biggie for, for uh, information technology, for sure. And, uh, as you mentioned, uh, very shortly thereafter, the Ottoman Turks seize Constantinople, and Europe's access to the East is strangled. And it's a total crisis for European civilization. So what is done is these um, incipient capitalists uh, pool their money and they finance new techniques in shipbuilding and nav <coughs> navigation. So this is all technical innovation and novelty. Uh, and they build ships and they sail around Africa and they reconnect to the east. Meanwhile, what's going on, uh, uh, and they get rich, that's what I meant to say. They get rich beyond their wildest dreams. These uh, uh, agricultural hill towns in northern Italy that had been dealing each other wine for centuries suddenly find themselves the center of the largest aggregation of capital ever gathered on the planet to that point. And they just pour money back toward their benefactors. Not only the scientists that had created the technological revolution that allowed this, but into the arts and into their palaces and into the planning of their cities. And they create the Italian Renaissance. And everybody who is anybody is positioned along this descent. You know, beginning with the Proto-Renaissance, the, the, the Fra Angelico and all of that, and then coming down through Donatello, Duccio, uh, not Duccio, Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Titian, Raphael, the whole bit. And the whole thing reaches culmination right down here at the bottom of the trough. They actually experience a, a kind of eschatonic event at the bottom of this novelty trough, which is they discovered the other half of the planet. Mm -hmm. That's what they do 500 years ago, 1492, right down here. Well, that blew the door off its hinges. There, ha you do, there has never been return to normality in a certain sense. That did it. Uh, this trough, what this trough pictures is a period that ends in 1619. 1619 is the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. This period across the bottom of this trough has been called by art historians who have no knowledge of this theory the age of the marvelous. This is the age of the great hermetic flowering. This is the age of Shakespeare and the court, the Rudolphine court in Prague. 
This is the age of Archimboldo and John Dee and Robert Flood and, uh, you know, that incredibly complex, psychedelic, manneristic mishmash that those late Renaissance people uh, put together. But there's a certain ugliness in it. It's not an entirely flat trough of novelty. There is a recursion to old patterns, and I maintain what that is, is the beginning of the the rape subjugation of the new world and then the rise of gangster capitalism in that environment. Because, interestingly, Europe was somewhat strangled before the discovery of the New World. I mean, it required resource management and all that. I mean, if you've been to places like Portugal, and you say, you know, these people ruled half the planet, this rocky, scrubby, storm-battered little country, how did they do it? Well, obviously, by expropriating other people's resources. That's how uh, they did it. So there was a period of normalcy where everybody was shipping, and it didn't change that much. There was just years of ship, go out, empty, come back full, empty, come back full. Well, except that all this information was pouring into Europe. It was like, it was like as though they had landed on alien planets. You know, Albrecht Dürer went to an exhibition of Toltec uh, carving in Leiden and his diary entries on this. I mean, for those people to gaze upon these artifacts, it was literally like science fiction to them and plants and animals. And they were the center of the world and all they knew was that. So it was like, it was like adding another earth to the equation for them. Exactly. An incredibly exotic earth. I mean, animals, plants, human beings, the largest river in the world, uh, the highest waterfall in the world, and on and on and on. It just swam into their kin, literally like an alien planet. 1619, the party's over. In America, this is called the Protestant Reformation out of some delicacy. It's not the Protestant Reformation, for God's sake. It's the Thirty Years' War. It's when everybody in Europe just went nuts and slaughtered each other uh, for 30 years until 1648. And, you know, the whole the Cromwellian thing happened in England, and uh, uh, it, it was a drag. It was wars of religion. Uh, that little clip that indicates a descent into novelty I call Newton's Notch. Newton was important enough that the entire... I mean, I'm teasing a little bit. There was other stuff going on, the foundation of the Royal Society and so forth and so on. But generally, this was a a period of recovery from the the age of, of the marvelous and it's an era of powdered wigs and uh, social mores, increasing class stratification, uh, uh, increasing assertion of the power of the Protestant churches in Northern Europe, and so forth and so on. And then up here, uh, 1740, this is what's called the European Enlightenment. And a bunch of French people, Voltaire, Rousseau, philosophers, theoreticians of how human society should be run, produce these screeds, these theoretical texts, but wild men in the Americas take this up, and the conclusion of all the philosophizing that goes on up here is the American Revolution, which occurs on a downsweep into novelty, and I would argue was 
reasonably successful, followed by the French Revolution, precisely on an upswing, in other words, a movement back into habit, and for my money, the French Revolution ended catastrophically. I mean, it's every liberal's nightmare, you know? I mean, it was horrible. The good people turned to monsters, and then they couldn't keep hold of it in spite of that. So the French Revolution ends with the enthronement of the Emperor Louis Napoleon. Go figure. Um, and then so forth. And as you see, the 20th century is down here at a much higher level of novelty, lower toward the zero point. And the entirety of the... Since the middle 19th century which is just about right, I maintain. Since the middle 19th century, we've just been exploring totally new territory. You know, once you get Michael Faraday and Conrad Lorenz and uh, Baron Lobachevsky and uh, Fitzhugh Ludlow and uh, uh, all this, you know, in other words, non-Euclidean geometry, electromagnetic field theory, psychedelic drug use, um, it, it all begins to come together, and of course then the most important, arguably the most important moment in the 19th century, completely unrecognized at the time, now predicted by the wave, was 1837, when uh, Charles Babbage assembled the difference engine and, uh, and laid the basis for the, the cybernetic revolution. Let's look at modern times in a little more... He built this thing called difference, the Difference Engine, the Babbage machine. It was a computer. And he knew what it was. He understood what was possible with it. He went to the British government. He offered it to them. He begged them to develop this. And it was just so beyond their imagining. It was a, it, but it, it had all the elements of a modern computer. It was not electric, of course. It was a mechanical computer. But all the principles were there, and in Babbage's writing, it's very clear he understood exactly what he had on his hands. Incredible. If you ever see a picture of Babbage, I mean, think about this. This guy lived in 1837. He looks like Flash Gordon. I mean, he has a haircut so in advance of his time. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> Now let's look at this. This is from 1888 over here. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, we talked, we mentioned or came up this afternoon how you can use the calendar as a political flog when you have nothing else going. Well, that not only happened in the, or that not only will for sure happen in 2000, but it very definitely happened in 1900. There's something about it. Everybody, they had the same feeling, actually, that we do now. The telephone had been invented in 1895, or, you know, popularized. They began installing them. Uh, uh, that was the Internet of that time. It's still pretty amazing stuff. I mean, how you deliver sex over copper wire, I don't know. But they managed to do that. Uh, and powered flight was on the, was happening all over the world people were working on it and so this point up here 
is, I believe, January 3rd, 1900, or something like that. It's so on the money. And then this cascade into novelty. They were full of hope. They, they felt it within their grasp. The old world, the Edwardian world, was falling away. It's 1900. Radio is ahead. Relativity is five years in the future. Planck's constant is filling the, uh, the physics journals. And, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, in art, the, the uh, pataphysics is happening. And uh, there's this, uh, in, in Italy, futurism is beginning. The first futurist tracts are being published. Well, then uh, the First World War, uh, quantum physics, all of these things, it, be- it gets weirder. It begins to get weirder. It becomes more than simply an object of optimism. It becomes hideously complex and novel and strange and bizarre. And it reaches an apex in 1933. And I don't have to tell you. <clears throat> so then, across the bottom of this thing, uh, World War II is fought. And World War II was like a rehearse for the apocalypse. I mean, wars now are not particularly about anything. That was a war which was about something. And it was utterly surreal for the people who experienced it to live through. I mean, it was about eugenics. It was about rocket bombs. It was about the power of radio to move millions of people. It was about propaganda. It was all kinds of things. And, of course, it ended with kicking open the nuclear doorway. Uh, anybody who doesn't think World War II was a surreal extravaganza, I recommend Thomas Pynchon's novel Gravity Rainbow, Gravity's Rainbow, which is an incredible thing to read, an incredible work of literature, and uh, uh, you'll never see life again the same way. Okay, so then once that's all over and it reaches its apex in the destruction of the Axis powers and the use of the atom bomb on Japan and so forth, everybody has but one thought. Let's knock this off. Let's have some kids, crack a beer, have a barbecue. They even called it the return to normalcy. And there was all this... Uh, uniform conformity culture, uh, Norman Rockwell, American white culture, all uh, racial, sexual, intellectual, and social aberrant phenomena was incredibly repressed. And there were some spills along the way, the JFK assassination, so forth and so on. And then it approaches the, the cusp the symmetry break. And if you have an incredible memory, you may remember that a few minutes ago I said Homer sang his song here, one cycle back, one fractal scale up. So uh, the analogy is, uh, or, or the analogy to Homer singing his song and to the fall of Mycenae and all of that or, I'm sorry, the fall of uh, Minoan culture to Mycenae is uh, the 1960s. 
the the freak the freak revolution, the Vietnam War, the age of LSD, the landing on the moon at this scale cannot be discerned from the top of that thing. That all comes together right there. 1968-69, that's where the cultural symmetry break occurs and then a dis- the final descent into novelty at that scale begins. And I submit to you that's a pretty good rendition of the myth of the culture that the media reinforces and that many of us carry. I mean, we do believe that was the turning point, that that once rock and roll, LSD, sexual permissiveness and all this stuff was unleashed, we've then just been refining and experimenting with those themes uh, ever since. Uh, the, the 70s were a descent into novelty. The 80s, these were fairly steady descents into novelty, but they didn't surpass the madness of the middle 40s until, uh, well, the early 80s, I guess. It's not at scale here. But, uh, and then, you know, with the Reagan era, we enter into a kind of different kind of time. This bizarre oscillation business where uh, it, it, there are surges of habit and then collapses into novelty and then reassertions of orthodoxy and then collapses into novelty. And this is what we're experiencing uh, now. Here, I'll go in on this. But faster than we've seen it previously. Like oscillations happen over five or ten years. This is oscillations that happen. Or oscillations over months, yeah. Um, there's now 89 years on the screen. Here are the 1960s. And now we're back to today. We're descending this thing. So basically what you're looking at is the 90s with the present year in the, mul- in the middle. And it shows that this is, by the wave, predicted to be the most dramatic year in the decade. And that that dramatic, whatever that drama is, it'll be in full play by June. Wise grab at Taiwan by the Chinese. Or it could be an AIDS cure. Or it could be an Ebola outbreak. Uh, I wouldn't look to the American presidential election for much excitement unless uh, there's gunplay which never rule it out in this country. Uh, uh, We play rough. Uh, There could be a scientific breakthrough of some sort. This this planet detection thing is obviously edging toward explosion because there is a water-heavy, oxygen-rich world out there within 50 light years, and the technology to detect it is now 99% in place. And it's just a matter of, you know, teasing it out of this hellaciously difficult data. But we're going to know. You know, recently the Hubble Space Telescope discovered uh, the other 80% of the galaxies in the universe. So we now have, instead of 10 million ga- billion galaxies, uh, in one press release we go to 50 billion galaxies. That means five times as much intelligence, five times as many civilizations, 
And, you know, that's page 42 news in uh, the New York Times. Uh, no, it's funny. People say, well, what will happen after 2012? Well, you haven't been listening. This theory doesn't say anything about what happens after 2012. This is a theory about what happens before 2012. That's why waiting to tw till 2012 to use it will be rather self-defeating because it won't work after 2012. <laughs> of course, if there is an after 2012, it will be wrong, in which case we will have the curious task on our hands, uh, some of us, of figuring out why it seemed right for so long. Mm -hmm. well, yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, I, I, I've never heard of anybody having an experience quite like this. I mean, it's hard for you probably to appreciate who I am because I appear fully in command of this. But I am not interested particularly in the I Ching. I'm not a mathematician don't like uh, predestiny or the... It's just not my style, this whole thing. Uh, I'm a rationalist and somewhat cynical, left to my own devices, perhaps a little dark. Uh, this is an incredible argument for some kind of hope. It says there is an architecture to time. It says the wars, the rapes, the horrible revisions that go on are part of the pattern and all will eventually find resolution in the final uh, culmination. Uh, and then, you know, the question which I would put to the mushroom or the logos or whoever it is, is if this is not true, then what possible purpose could all this have served? I mean, what's it for? I don't mind the public disgrace of being wrong, but it'll humble me, but we didn't probably need to mobilize a mass movement to humble me. So, so what was it all for? And I confess, I really, I, I don't know. I, I have ideas. I mean, any question like that, as long as I've been thinking on it, there will be answers. I mean, how about this? Suppose um, the unconscious is a kind of regulatory, has a kind of regulatory function and uh, of hysteria, of mass hysteria, and that what this prophecy made by me, made by the Maya, made by these Vedic people, what it's for is to smear expectations about the millennium. So that instead of having it all focus on January 1, 2000, there'll be dissenters. There'll be people who say, well, it isn't January 1, 2000. Haven't you heard? It's 2012. <laughs> and so then a huge number of people will put their faith on 2000. They'll be disappointed and they'll go away and get lives and then the people who didn't contribute to that hysteria will delay their hysteria till 2012 and then it will fail and then they'll get lives and then by this ruse the unconscious mind will have helped the species cross over this calendrical speed bump 
without, you know, mass hysteria, nuclear war, or religious pogrom, which might otherwise be a factor. I don't feel the power, particularly, of this idea, but it's the only one I've come up which answers the question, if this isn't true, what the hell is the point? In, in Jan's work on the I Ching, does he touch on any cyclical his, historical reference? No, this is surprisingly absent, uh, uh, although in the Wilhelm Baines translation, there is something called the sequence. And it's, uh, it's old, it's Joe, it's, and it's a kind of a poem which attempts to make a logical transition from each hexagram to the next in the King-Wen sequence. There are curious statements in the I Ching which definitely support the idea that there must be big chunks missing. For example, uh, hexagram 49 in the Wilhelm Baines translation is called Revolution. So you turn to this expecting a, a dissertation on political reform of society and you dis and what it says is uh, the shaman is a calendar maker he orders the seasons and he sets things right and it's a it's a whole discussion about calendar making and uh, as a way of creating political reform well that's bizarre uh, another interesting thing is hexagram 63 is after completion. Hexagram 64 is before completion. The logic of their order is reversed. Again, suggesting that reversing the order of things is somehow allowed. The middle hexagram, meaning the hexagram at the halfway point, if you believe that the sequence des was designed as a structure, uh, is number 32, is called duration. And the image is of a ridge pole. Well, obviously, the ridge pole is at the center and the, and the rafters uh, move off of it. Uh, I can't remember which hexagram it is that says... He who correctly understands the import of this sacrifice can hold the universe in the palm of his hand like a spinning marble. That's a very alchemical redaction. Uh, and so forth and so on. I mean, uh, it just there are all kinds of textual clues to the fact. And of course, this is coming through translation. It's very important to read many translations of the I Ching. The Wilhelm Baines is incredibly deep and poetic and wonderful and preferred by me because I grew up with it. But did you ever notice? It's not a translation of a Chinese book. It's a translation of a German book. It's the Carrie F. Baines translation of the German edition of the I Ching by Richard Wilhelm. Uh, uh, there's recently been other translations of the I Ching and, and they are, you know, some bring one thing to it and some another. But I think we have been, for culturally biased reasons, as I said, incredibly naive about time. Uh, one, and this is the final thought that I'll leave you with the, this evening, 
say this is true, how can it be true and not involve God's entry into history or the explosion of the sun or the coming of the Space Brothers or some other highly improbable and somewhat cheesy event? How, how can it fulfill itself and yet you know, not require willful suspension of disbelief? Well, one thought that's occurred to me, you touched on it, the wave doesn't seem to work after 2012, but I've noticed in analyzing all this history and stuff that what the wave, like people will always ask me, does it do the stock market? Only if the stock market moves hundreds of points, otherwise it's lost in the noise of everything else going on in the world. Uh, when I ask myself, what does this wave predict best? In other words, is it politics? Is it biological evolution? What is it that it really predicts well? The answer is technology. It, it, it v seems to argue that technology and novelty are almost the same thing. And interesting that the DMT creatures are builders in light. And now we're on the verge through VRML of becoming uh, builders in light. Well, if the wave describes technologies unfolding through time, and if the wave can't be propagated past 2012, then it must be because in 2012, a technology is invented which makes linear time and ends it. In other words, time travel. Time travel. Now, 10 years ago, only mad people talked about time travel. It was not a respectable subject. Uh, recently, there have been articles in Physical Review Letters, in Scientific American, in Nature. It's a very hot topic. There are many schemes for time travel. There are many notions about how time travel could be uh, done. Uh, and actually, we should have been paying attention because Kurt Gödel in 1948 wrote a paper that advanced a scheme for time travel that was within uh, the realm of possibility. Possibility. I'm not saying we're going to cobble one together tomorrow. I mean, in some of these schemes, you have to spin cylinders the size of the solar system and stuff like that. But any technology that can be imagined can be realized uh, by somebody. Well, if time travel were invented in 2012, that would explain why there was no longer possible a Cartesian graphical linear description of time's unfolding, because at that point, time becomes multivectored and can no longer be portrayed in this kind of a, of a matrix. Now, uh, and the la this is the last on this, but uh, an objection to time travel is always uh, the grandfather paradox which seems to imply that if time travel is possible, it's only possible forward in time. Because if it were possible backward in time, you could hit, come back and kill your own grandfather, and then you wouldn't exist. And so therefore, nobody could kill him. And you get a logical paradox that is always trotted out to defeat time travel schemes. I have a different notion of how this works. Uh, Time travel is not what we think it is. 
if, if what we call time travel is an invention, which if ever invented, the moment the time machine was turned on, the rest of the history of the universe will happen instantly. Because uh, uh, there, in order to avoid these temporal paradoxes, the entire system would have to undergo uh, a kind of uh, collapse. Uh, here's an analogy which might make this clearer. Uh, if you release gas into a cylinder, it pre- the pressure equalizes on the walls of the cylinder. This is called Bernoulli's law. Well, so uh, imagine that we suddenly become able to travel into the future. At first, I imagined that what would happen is thousands and thousands of time machines would appear instantly, having traveled backward in time to witness the first flight forward into time. Mm -hmm. It would be as though you could fly your Piper Cub to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, to that windy morning in 1905 when the Brothers W pushed out the flyer and took off. But then I realized, you know, this bears with it the implication of the grandfather paradox. So instead, I think what happens is the moment the first time machine is turned on, uh, the most advanced state of evolution arrives instantly at the other side of the boundary. It's, I call it the God whistle. Uh, a, a time machine is not really a time machine. It's a way of destroying the rest of the history of the universe. And so, it, in a sense, we're back to the big picture again. The invention of the time machine is a self-initiated annihilation of space and time. It's a technological device explains why technology is critical in Yes, absolutely. And interestingly enough, if you think they wouldn't risk this, there's, I told you yesterday, nothing comes unannounced. There's a very interesting story about the first atom test at Trinity in 1945. Yes, they had equations uh, in front of them which led some people on the advanced team to believe that when the device was detonated, the nitrogen in the atmosphere would ignite and that the entire, at- the entire atmosphere of the planet would burn. And they figured it was a one in ten. And so they said, yeah, reasonable odds. Hitler's out there. I guess Hitler wasn't out there at that point, but those wily Japs were out there. So they said a one in ten chance and they threw the switch and it turned out the chamber was empty, so we're here to tell the tale. Uh, but uh, well, this this reminds me of a wrinkle. Um, here's a possible scenario which makes use of this concept. There is an, a, a cosmological uh, theory out there. It's not the top contender. It's mostly been developed by this guy Hans Alfven and it's called a vacuum fluctuation cosmology. Quantum physics allows these things called vacuum fluctuations. And what they are is 
particles literally appear out of nowhere. And uh, this is allowed by quantum physics as long as parity is conserved. And what that means is that these particles must contact their antiparticle and annihilate themselves and restore the system to a net energy of zero. But there is this, yes, but there is this brief moment during the vacuum fluctuation when matter comes into being ex nihilo. Now, the interesting thing about the quantum description of the vacuum fluctuation is that the mathematics set no theoretical upper limit for the size of the fluctuation. It simply says the larger the fluctuation, the rarer it is. So Hans Alvin suggests we are in a vacuum fluctuation of 10 high 22 particles. And what that means is that somewhere in the larger metaverse, our antimatter twin exists. And for the laws of physics to keep the accounts balanced, parity will have to be conserved. And what that might mean is a higher dimensional collision with our lost twin. And this would not be a collision in three-dimensional space. You wouldn't see it coming. It would occur instantaneously throughout the entire space-time continuum. All particles would annihilate their antiparticles, and there is only one particle that has no antiparticle. The photon has no, there is no antiphoton. So if the universe were a vacuum fluctuation of this type, at the moment of the reconservation of parity, all matter in this universe would disappear. 100% it would disappear. And what would be left is all the light in the universe. And a, a, a universe filled entirely with photons, we have no idea what that is. That might be the mind of God. That might be the omega of the eschaton. Uh, it, consciousness, there was an article in Scientific American of all places three issues ago suggesting that consciousness is a general quality of the universe like gravity and light is implicated. So it's possible that the entire, that, uh, now that's a, a large scale, you talk about abandoning the body. This is a cosmology where at a certain point in the life of the universe, all matter disappears. And uh, uh, that would certainly, uh, for my money, fulfill the novelty uh, theory. <laughs> in, a, in a way, all the fiber optic being laid leaves for a lot more light being pushed around than previously in a way, or at least light in a much more complex pattern than just the sunshine of Earth. Well, and the fact that we're beginning to build with light, that virtual realities are made of light. People don't understand, you know, in virtual reality, the difference between a 10-story building and a 100-story building, one zero. You enter the code where it says make it 10 stories high, you add one zero, it now makes it a hundred stories high. Cost 
it's free. Light is free. I mean, virtually free. The technologies it moves through aren't free. But, you know, we have hidden helpers in the quantum realm. Those little electrons, they are numerous. They want to help. Uh, you know, Horton, here's a who, that sort of thing. Well, that's the basic lay of the land on this. Uh, oh, one last thing I should say in the interest of intellectual honesty is not everybody loves the time wave, and some of the people who hate it are very bright. Uh, and if you're interested in, you know, Bear Duke's uh, discussions about this, check my wave, uh, check my website. Uh, there's a young British mathematician who thinks he can take it apart, and we've been going at it, hammer and tongs, and we're going to lift the curtain on our discussion pretty soon. I would like inspection. I mean, I invite, and those of you who are professional or amateur mathematicians, uh, I'd like to, people should check my work. Uh, my, I told you the first night, my method is shamanic, but my, or my techniques are shamanic, but my method is scientific and rational. The truth can defend itself. If this can be broken uh, on on the wheel of logical analysis, then so be it. Uh, it does empower hope, but there's no percentage in false hope. I mean, the only true hope uh, is in uh, the maintenance of an open mind. So thank you very much. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, uh, now do you understand why I've not been playing these time wave lectures lately? But if for some reason you would like to hear more of these excursions into time and the I Ching, well, there are more than a dozen others that I've already podcast, including uh, his discussion on two subsequent occasions to the uh, lecture that we just listened to, where he talked about the challenges to his idea that he just mentioned. And you can go back and listen to them again if you want, but for me, the time wave excitement is over. By the way, uh, did you notice that Terence just began with the assumption that the I Ching is to be taken in and believed without question? If this session had begun with an introduction similar to the one I gave earlier, I doubt if so many people would have bought into his time wave idea so easily. In fact, I can't remember a single instance where the I Ching itself was challenged, at least when Terence was presenting his new idea. And since it is the basis of his entire system, it seems to me that the starting point for this talk should have been to bring into question the reliability and accuracy of the I Ching's ability to predict the future. My guess is that the evening's discussion would have taken an entirely different direction had that been the case. So here's a question you may want to think about. Now that we know the time wave hypothesis was a bust, does that also mean that the I Ching, while it does contain some good ideas, it nonetheless isn't something that one should build their lives around? To give Terence's due, however, he does clearly point out that he is using an ancient Chinese oracle to make a major revision to the science of physics. <laughs> now, taken at face value, this seems preposterous, and as it turned out, it actually was preposterous. So why, then, 
with this major blunder in Terence's thinking, at least from my perspective, why did we still go to his workshops, pass around his tapes, and stay up late at night talking about some of his other ideas? Well, that question answers itself, I think, because if you haven't already figured it out, the genius of Terence McKenna was in his ability to provoke unique thoughts in our own minds as we contemplate what he was saying. Even when we disagreed with him, we were still able to mine a great deal of new ideas that his lectures sparked in us. My guess is that this has already happened to you and your friends, at least if you've listened to enough of his talks. Terence McKenna, in my opinion, was primarily a catalyst whose mission it was to spark new ideas in his listener's mind. In closing, I'd like to say that while I do count myself as a die-hard Terence McKenna fan, well, if the time wave was his only message, and if he never talked about psychedelics as well, well, he most likely wouldn't have captured my attention as he did. And while some people may say that the time wave was his Achilles heel and that it should bring down his reputation, well, I prefer to see it as evidence that, like all of us, Terence could be wrong about some things. He, too, had feet of clay. And in my book, that makes some of his other ideas even more appealing to me, since they aren't coming from someone who sees himself as an infallible guru, which is a stigma that he tried to avoid as best he could. So, the bottom line for me is that, while I'm not a fan of the time wave, I nonetheless remain a big fan of Terence McKenna. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>